And I guess like for me, I, I know what it's like to be in love with more than one person. Like it's happened to me before and more than once in my life. And I, I think I was just really kind of baffled by the idea that like, that that necessarily had to mean ending one of those relationships, you know? Um, I wanted the freedom to be able to fall in love um, if I was gonna fall in love. And I didn't wanna close myself off to that. Um, So that's like a big thing for me. And I also want that for my partners or the people that I date. Like I don't want them to be in that position. Hey, 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 friends. Welcome to the Naked Podcast. I'm your host, Martisa Williams. In this space, we'll explore a whole range of practices for our individual and collective freedom. My entire life has been spent soaking up practice after modality, after protocol to free my body and soul. Join me in conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders on topics ranging from health to sex to spirituality to justice. So, are you ready to get naked with me? Well, let's talk about it. Hey, hey, hey. It's another Thursday, another episode of the Naked Podcast. How was your week? How are you feeling? How's your heart feeling? I think these are questions that we need to be asking ourselves constantly, but especially um, a lot these days with all that's happening in the world. So I hope you take that little reminder to just like check in and see how you're really feeling and not how you think you're supposed to be feeling right now. So before we get into the show, I have a bunch of announcements and little notes that I wanted to share with you. The first being that the people of Rochester, New York are still fighting for the justice for Daniel Prude. So some ways that you can help is with donating. Um, The protesters need supplies. They need gas masks. They need um, umbrellas. They need supplies to keep them safe from the police and their retaliation. Um, And they also need food. So you can support protesters by donating by Venmoing um, at BLM Rock or at Free the People, FTP Rock. I'm sorry. And um, there's a lot, a bunch of other links that you can people you can Venmo that will be getting these supplies out to people, um, and more information in the description box. So definitely check down there because all this stuff I'm about to talk about is linked in the show notes. So yeah, justice for Daniel Prude. Um, The second thing is I have been dreaming up um, a space and a community where we can all be supporting each other in our efforts to get free, specifically from a a perspective of um, unlearning the embodiment of oppression. So getting out of our bones and the ways that we act, the ways that we relate to ourselves, the ways that we relate to ways that we relate to others, God, my words. Um, really unlearning how capitalism, white supremacy, and the patriarchy are etched in our self-expression and how we understand and relate to others. So I'm excited 
to announce that I will be running the first um, release intensive, which will be a three-month program where we really dig into um, what these systems of oppressions are, how they show up in our lives, and then getting them out of our bones. So there will be classes with me, maybe even some guest teachers. There'll be one-on-one coaching opportunities or just like opportunities to talk through some things like processing sessions. There will be movement that I will be teaching, um, some asana with yoga, um, hopefully some dance. And um, we'll be doing some meditation, some breath work. Um, And there'll be a guidebook as well to take you through this journey. There will be prompts and ways to um, kind of evaluate where you're at and where you want to be going in your getting free efforts. So if you'd be interested in joining me, um, in the link in the show notes, um, this is the release intensive you can sign up for the email list and I will be actually um, emailing everyone soon to set up some kind of discovery calls with me just to talk through details, to talk through pricing, um, and to talk through what your hopes are and what your desires would be for joining this cohort. So if you're interested in that, please um, let me know. Even if you follow me on Instagram, you can go ahead and DM me. Or the easiest way would just be sign up for that email list in the the show notes. And then the next thing was that I wanted to talk to you about is that we've got another books and yoga coming up um, on October 11th at 11:30 Eastern Time. It is virtual, and essentially, if you haven't heard of books and yoga, it is the books and yoga club that I co-founded with one of my close friends, where we highlight um, books by people of color. Um, and books that help us uh, reimagine our world. So we discuss the book, then we practice together to process through it in from our body's perspective. Um, and this month, we will be reading Beyond Survival, Survival Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. And with all that's going on specifically with BLM and Black, the Movement for Black Lives, um, I really think this is an important book to be reading to see how are we undoing the structures of white supremacy um, and how we can stop believing that throwing people away in jails is necessary. So I'm excited to be really diving into that and I'd hope you join us um, in that exploration. And then my last announcement, and then we'll get into the show, is that the podcast is moving to bi-weekly. So realizing that I'm a one-woman show and um, all the other projects that I have, including work, um, it would be in my best interest to be moving this bi-weekly. And in that way, also, the content can kind of live a little longer. So um, we won't be... There will not be a new podcast next week, but the following week there will, and moving forward we'll be on that cadence. All right, all the announcements. Any information that I was just sharing is in the show notes. Um, So let's get into this episode, shall we? So I'm so excited to have Clementine Morgan on today. Clementine is a writer and a teacher that lives in Montreal, Canada, and is the author author of several books, one of 
one of them including Love Without Emergency. She is the creator of the popular workshop Trauma-Informed Polyamory that's now available online, link in the show notes. Um, And she's a socialist, an anarchist, and a willful optimist. She's passionate about nervous system education and believes that relationship is the fundamental reality. She teaches and writes about love, sexuality, community from a trauma-informed perspective. And in this episode, I, I tell Clementine, like, I'm a better person for knowing her work. And I think that you also will be. That's presumptuous, but I, it's just a belief. Um, but Clementine is just so full of knowledge and so full of compassion. And I think this episode is just great because, one, it's fun. We're talking about some some interesting topics. And I kind of go into my... I'd start telling all my fucking business in this episode. So if you want just the juice on that, you might want to keep listening. Um, So in this episode, we talk about trauma and we start off talking about trauma. So there is a bit of a trigger warning. We don't get into it at all. We literally, um, Clementine just acknowledges that she's a um, victim of childhood abuse Um, but we talk about trauma, we talk about agency over trauma recovery and the need for human connection. And then we go into Clementine's journey into polyamory and polyamory versus non-monogamy. We talk about my relationship to polyamory. And then, um, we get into how like polyamory really is kind of like ninja training. Um, and then we get into, uh, how you can be trauma informed with polyamory and how that's really, really important. We talk about attachment styles, the polyvagal theory, um, and then we get into kink, which is a super fun conversation. We talk about the power of submission, and then we get a little bit into her politics around anarchism as a spiritual value, abolitionism and care, and how you just need to stop and watch the bees. Um, So this is an incredible episode. I hope you enjoy it, um, and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi, I'm so happy that you're here. I've been super excited to get to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So the first question I ask all my guests is what made you, you? Yeah, that's such a big question. Um, (laughs) Honestly, like, I feel like I kind of I kind of am at a point in my life where I want to be able to have a different answer to that question, but I feel like it's still sort of the same answer and it's kind of a depressing answer, but (laughs) that's all right. uh, I guess, yeah, you're familiar with my work and it's can be a little bit heavy. Some of the stuff that I talk about and basically I would say that like trauma is Mm -hmm. what is what made me who I am and has very much shaped the trajectory of my life. So yeah, I'm a survivor of child abuse and have complex PTSD. So I really think that that uh, experience was like incredibly, you know, it set the course of my life in many like negative ways, but it has also been what has sort of structured obviously the work that I do um, and my career as like a writer um, and a teacher. And I would like to move to a place where that is no longer the answer to that question and where like my work isn't always so focused on trauma. I'm kind of like 
reaching that point in my early 30s of like I want a bit of a different story but so far that's that's the answer yeah that's such a that's like a perfect I almost feel a really great way to frame it too because I just I really struggle with the balance and this is a little bit of a tangent but I, I really struggle with the balance of like owning the struggle right owning the trauma owning not being like I'm gonna hide behind that thing but then the balance of being like I don't want to be defined mm-hmm. by that experience either but I am like you know at the end of the day <laughs> like it, it is what it is like that thing has a huge impact yeah. um I'm always trying to figure out what that balance is because I I've been thinking about that a lot in context of blackness of just mm-hmm. like being like, you know, being a black American, being a descendant of slaves. It's like, there's a beauty in the struggle. Like there's a beauty in the like things that we had to overcome, but it's like, well, fuck, I don't want to be defined by the abuser. I don't want to be defined mm-hmm. by the abuse. And, you know, it's, it's hard. Like it's a hard way to even frame your own story that's outside of the trauma without negating like that is a big part of things. Totally. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, I agree. It's like important to, it's like important and it's honest to like name that that is like what it is, you know? Um, But also, yeah, I want to be able to, I've been on a trajectory of like trying to have space for more things in my life. And Mm. ultimately like the goal for me of like trauma recovery is to get to a place where there is so much more space and like, that's never going to go away. It's obviously always going to be there, but like perhaps the relationship to it can shift. Yeah. What does trauma recovery look like for you? Like what, like in a dream state for you, like, what does that feel like? What does it look like? What does your life look like with that? I mean, I guess basically like to me, the way that I look at trauma recovery, there's sort of three pieces to it. Um, for myself and the work that I do. Um, One has to do with nervous system regulation. And so like, basically it has like moving towards a more recovered place for me would mean being in a a more regulated nervous system um, experience. So it would mean that I'm not flying out of my safe and social state, um, you know, randomly or like yeah. for unnecessarily or like inappropriately to the, to the current circumstance, I'm more able to stay grounded in, um, the ventral vagal, like safe and social state. Um, so that's one piece. The other piece is attachment. So, um, being able to have earned secure attachment, um, and not being so disorganized in my mm-hmm. attachment style. And then the other piece is one that I talk about less in my work, but it's actually probably the most like sort of intense trauma work that I'm doing, which has to do with structural dissociation. So structural dissociation is like a part of developmental trauma in which like the personality becomes fragmented. Mm. Um, And it's actually a lot more common than people think. There's like a huge misunderstanding about structural dissociation, that it's only something that happens Um, with DID and like it's only something that happens you know in the extreme cases in which people like lose uh, time or they don't remember when they switch Mm -hmm. Um, but actually uh, structural dissociation is like a large part of developmental trauma for a lot of people and unfortunately a lot of people don't understand this and a lot of therapists don't even know that that's they don't use that model so therefore yeah, like a lot of people don't realize that this might be part of what's going on for them. And so 
yeah, I fortunately, uh, a few years back had a therapist who was like, that's not mood swings. You're having structural dissociation. And since then I've had, that's been a big part of my trauma recovery. Um, but I find it's harder to talk about that just because there's so much like stigma and misunderstanding about what that actually means. So I tend to focus more on the attachment and nervous system pieces in my like professional work, but I'm trying to find a way to talk about that stuff more because I actually think it is relevant to a lot of people. Yeah, I would be really interested in learning more about that as well. I sometimes like listening to you talk because my your background educationally, you're not like a therapist, no, right? I'm not a therapist. Like, you're just like a person that's like I mean, but like you listen. I listen to you, and I'm like, well, fuck, I didn't know this, 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 this. <laughs> And I, I'm thinking I'm talking to a therapist, you know, but um, I, what I think is so incredible about your work and how you talk about trauma, like as a thing in and of its own, but then you begin to kind of um, bring it out to all the ways in which it's like affecting the other parts of our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we'll get into the sexuality piece and I think that's really what brought me to your work, but um it has been, I think, finding you, getting into your work for me, even though I've been in, in and out of therapy since I was 12 years old. And, um, but having language around trauma, like having the language of the polyvagal theory, having the language of attachment styles and things like that, what I have found is that it doesn't have me thinking that I'm just gone, you know, like I don't like, I don't want to use the word crazy, but like, that it doesn't have me feeling isolated. I feel like, oh, I can name that. Oh, I can name that. And now once I can name it, then I can maybe do something about it. Um, But how did you, can you give me like a little map of how you got here? Like you're so knowledgeable about things. How did that happen? Um, Honestly, yeah, like in my trauma-informed polyamory workshop, I'm like, yeah, like disclosure, I'm not a therapist. I'm just like a very traumatized person who has been on this journey and like, For me, like self-education is like a huge resource for me to, you know, make sense and to like um, feel like I have some kind of control over this trajectory of healing that I'm on. Um, And so I guess like for me, I'm actually like pretty anti-psychiatry, which is maybe surprising, but I, I strongly differentiate between psychiatry and like what I would call therapy or like Mm. um trauma like recovery stuff is not necessarily like capital p psychiatry um and i identify as a psychiatric survivor in the sense that i was like incarcerated uh in psychiatric institutions when i was quite young and had horrible experiences there and like the experiences that i had were you know incredibly like biomedical like they just Mm. they just Mm -hmm framed it as like, there's something wrong with my, you know, the neurochemicals and I need to be medicated. And, you know, it was not an empowering experience at all. It was actually like quite traumatizing. Um, And like, even then I was really young, I was like 15, but I knew that it didn't make sense. And I understood that obviously like my, my behavior was like pretty out of control, but like, I could make some kind of sense out of, you know, there's a connection between what has happened in my life and what's happening now. Mm. I'm traumatized, but I didn't fully have the language. And so anyway, when I, when I was 25 is when I finally got into some kind of non-psychiatric therapy. Um, and I was like very clear, like 
I will not be psychiatrized. And if I am being psychiatrized, I'm leaving, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that sort of opened up this possibility that like trauma recovery could be something that I have agency in. And it's something that I can choose for myself. It's something that I get to decide what works for me and what doesn't. It's not like just that there's like this authority, which is like an institution that is going to be telling me what has to happen to me. And I'm just a passive recipient of that. So I've become very active in my quest for like what works and what doesn't. And, you know, complex PTSD is hard to live with. And obviously I want to have a full life. So Mm -hmm. I've been like very, um, just very motivated to find out what's going to work. And I've read tons and tons of stuff and tried tons and tons of stuff. And so I now have like a really large body of knowledge about trauma um, that I'm, you know, just sharing with people because, well, partially because I feel like, yeah, like people do want to learn about this stuff and it might be more accessible to a lot of people to hear about it in the way that I talk, which is like more normal, the way normal people talk. It's not like some, cause like a lot of these books are directed towards therapists. Right. And you have, to like read, you have to read between the lines. It's confusing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just try to share the knowledge that I have in like a down to earth, like way that people can relate to. I definitely find it like extremely relatable, but also not dumbed down. Like if that makes sense, like I, I like feel like I'm getting the real deal, but just in a way that like, I don't have to know all the fucking terms and all of the, you know, like it's like, it's accessible. It's very yeah. accessible how I have, I have found your work for sure. Yeah. I try to be that way because I'm like, well, I just talk the way that I talk. So it's like, <laughs> and I'm not trying to talk to therapists. Like there's already so many resources for therapists and there aren't a lot of resources for traumatized people directly. Yeah. I also think it's important to like, what I have found through your work as well is like the fact that trauma most of us are traumatized in some way, you know, and like kind of, I think at least in, in my community and how I grew up, like the idea of being traumatized is like a really huge far out idea. Like something just really ridiculously dramatic had to happen to you X, Y, Z. But the more that I understand mental health and, and go into my own mental health journey, it's like, Oh no, 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 no. Like there are so many elements to our world that is traumatizing. And I also think that our, like, our baseline for, like, no- normal, quote-unquote, normal behavior is, like, really just piss poor. <laughs> like, it's just so... Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, like, one of the things I talk about in my trauma-informed polyamory workshop is, like, trauma imposter syndrome. Mm. So, like, so often, it's, like, people will come to that workshop, but have this, like, hesitancy that, like, what what happened to them wasn't that bad, and so, therefore they don't have the right to like be having the the sort of mental health experiences that they're having. And yeah, to me, I'm like, that's, I understand. I also felt that way. Like for a long time, I was like, what happened to me wasn't that bad. Why am I this crazy? Um, but in fact, it's actually very easy to traumatize people, especially children. Like it's incredibly easy. Um, and so yeah, like trauma is just an experience that overwhelms your nervous system's capacity to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, and in childhood, because we're so completely dependent on our caregivers in like a life and death way, um, it's very easy for our caregivers not to be able to provide that level of safety that children need 
even if your your caregivers are not like overtly abusive, right. you know, under capitalism and these other systems that we're living under, like parents are like stretched thin. They often have their own histories of trauma that have not been addressed. You know, there's lots of stuff going on. And so it's very easy for people to have like nervous system experiences that are totally overwhelming. And then to have that in like a consistent way, which is like a recipe for developmental trauma, even without like overt abuse. And obviously lots of people are also experiencing more overt abusive situations. So. Right. Absolutely. Um, I can't stop thinking about the trauma of being black right now, just because mm -hmm. of obviously all the things that are happening. Um, and like you said, the word uh, trauma imposter syndrome, like it's, sometimes I feel that being in my body and I'm going to try and break this down a little bit. I'm a light skinned one black woman who had the privilege of going to wildly expensive schools and like had this education and had this proximity to whiteness. And yet, and still, I still feel the trauma of being black in my bones. And like, there's a part of me that like, is not so much, oh, I'm not black enough. It's not about that. It's more about like, oh, well, I had all this privilege. I shouldn't X, Y, Z. But ancestrally, there's an imprint. And then just the, um, the trauma of watching your family, your friends, your community constantly be under siege. It's like, inputting all of that. And so I'm also, I've been thinking about that and I've been thinking about capitalism and how the expectation of us to be robots, like the expectation of us to not to have, you know, to like, regardless of what trauma, what experiences we're having to always be showing up, always be producing, always be, 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 be. And it's like, well, fuck, when do I get to at what point does capitalism allow me to heal? Because I, to yeah. me, I've been kind of struggling with that. It's like, where, where is the space? Like, is there even opportunity in this system in order for me to really do the deep healing? Yeah, 100%. And there's no, you know, like when people are being massively triggered, um, you know, like what's going on in the United States right now is like extremely intense. People are probably feeling huge amounts of trauma and grief that is coming up. Um, and, you know, there's no like time off to, right. to process that, you know, it's like, there's no time off from capitalism, from the everyday like struggle of trying to survive under a pandemic, no less, um, right, right. you know, to process and to grieve what's happening for people in their bodies on a nervous system level when that kind of uh, systemic trauma is just like all over the place right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think also about the this, the trauma that like capitalism has on all bodies, regardless of race. It obviously has different effects based on on other categories. But I'm just thinking about the expectation that capitalism sets of constantly doing, constantly being, and not even actually being, just constantly doing, constantly producing. Um, I'm interested in like how that. Uh, I wish there was a way to measure. Like, I wish there was a way to measure the, uh, the traumatic effect that it has on our body, not only our physical yeah. bodies, but our, our mental body as well. Totally. I think it's extremely traumatizing. And a piece of that too is like the intense alienation that yeah. we experience under capitalism because we are social animals. Like we are evolved to be in relationship and in groups and in connection, you know, and our nervous systems like deeply need that. 
and you know the the lifestyle that is like pushed on us through capitalism is to totally abandon our social needs in favor of you know producing as you said and right. you know now we're like replacing our social lives with social media which is like incredibly disturbing and upsetting because yeah. we can't regulate that way like we're actually not having a ventral vagal like connection in the same mm. way when we are on instagram you know we actually are supposed to be looking at each other's faces and like preferably you know actually being in the same room as each other right. um which obviously that's becoming even harder with the pandemic people are even more alienated but yeah, I think that alienation is is traumatic in and of itself, like not being able to have connection and like, yeah, just thinking about like, how do people even meet people anymore? Like, mm-hmm. you don't, like there isn't really like social, like community spaces anymore. Like no. it's like people have their jobs and I don't know, like they meet people on like Tinder, I guess. Like that's basically like what that's it, it is. That's, that's it. <laughs> I mean, and in the middle of this pandemic, it's like, you don't even want to yeah. look at one in the face. So it's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's really wild to think about like where we're going to go from here, you know, like from a social standpoint, like where are we going to go? And I think, un- unfortunately, we're being fooled and not by a power at B necessarily, but just by virtue of having to use it, but we're being spooled by technology that it keeps us connected because it's like, it's amazing. I can talk to you and you're in Montreal, right? Yeah. Yep. I can talk to you in Montreal and I'm in Rochester, New York. And it's like, oh, I feel connected and this is great. Mm -hmm. But it's like, from, like you said, like from a nervous system space, from a, 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 just a heart center connection space, if we were able to have this conversation, looking each other face to face in the same room, feeling each other's energy, feeling each other's warmth, that does that has a different effect on the body, you know? Totally, totally. I'm just afraid that people are gonna be like, no, it's fine, I can just zoom you rather than yeah. like let's go get lunch, you know? Totally. And I I it is worrisome and I don't know how long this is really gonna go on for. Obviously, we don't have answers, but I don't know, like when this started happening, I was like, huh, this is kind of scary, even like from a capitalist sort of perspective, because it's like cheaper to zoom than it is to like set up physical spaces for people to be in together, you know? And I wonder like how many like sort of like things like schools and workplaces or whatever are going to sort of continue that that neoliberal downsizing of just being like, we're not even going to have a physical space anymore. We're just going to Zoom because it's like more cost efficient to have the worker right. have their own computer at home and, and Zoom or whatever. Right. Who knows? We'll see. But to me, I'm like capitalists. I can totally see why capitalists would be into that, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's revol- it's already revolutionizing, like how we gather, mm-hmm. how we meet, how we do work and all of it. But so let's take a hard pivot into um, polyamory. Mm-hmm. And um, I want, I'm sure, like, I want to do a little one-on-one about like what it is, how we got here, all this type of things, because it's not something I have yet talked about on the podcast and it's honestly not a conversation that I've had with many of the people in my lives in general um I don't have a problem talking about my relationship to it but um would love to kind of set it up like what how did what is it how did you get here and then I want to talk a little bit about like how I find it liberatory but that's getting ahead of ourselves okay yeah so I mean, the first time that I started to identify as polyamorous, I was like 
maybe 16 or 17. So I was like really young. And like truly the reason was because I was in a long-term relationship and I was in love with someone else. Um, and I was like, I don't know what to do about this. And so I, <laughs> I just like went on Google and started Googling and then I discovered that polyamory was a thing. So that was sort of how I got into it. And like there was a period of time um, when I was a teenager where I was like actively polyamorous. Um, but then because of the trajectory of my life, um, like I'm an alcoholic and I was very, uh, because of my trauma, I was like incredibly unstable for many years. So like during those years, I was basically, I wouldn't call myself polyamorous. I was definitely sleeping around, but I was like totally unstable. Um, and so when I was 25 is when I got sober and like got into therapy and started to change my life. And then, um, I guess I was maybe about two years sober when I, I fell in love with my best friend and I was like, I really want to be polyamorous. I feel like this is something that I really want to do. It's something that I used to do as a teenager. And I think it's like in line with like my values and my true desires. So let's try this. And the, my, my partner at the time who I just started dating was also like on the same wavelength and also wanted to, to be polyamorous. So we like, sort of started the relationship with that in mind but I had a mental breakdown <laughs> you know um yeah my beginning. mental my mental health was totally out of control um and I could not understand why because it was like something that I wanted and it was something that like in my head was like this is what I want but I did not understand at the time but I was having like a really profound nervous system response rooted in my attachment trauma and I could not figure it out. And so that's what led me down the road of, you know, all of the work that I have done around trauma-informed polyamory. Um, but yeah, I mean, I ended up leaving that relationship. We, we became monogamous for a period of time just so that I could like try to figure out what was going on with me. And then eventually the relationship ended. And then when I started dating again, I was like, I want to be polyamorous. So I did. <laughs> and then I have been now for uh, like three and a half years, I think. Um, and yeah, so it's like interesting because I think it's definitely monogamous people have a tendency in general to be like, um, oh my God, like how, how do you do that? Or like, I can never do that. That seems like really, really hard. And then especially with trauma, on top of that, like, you know, there's, there's definitely been times where I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, right, it's definitely right. so much more work, um, in terms of like having to face my, my trauma and like my attachment issues. Like it would definitely be easier if I was monogamous. Cause I wouldn't have to, it would still be there for sure. Like I would still right. have attachment stuff, but I think this is like, yeah, it's just like really facing it head on. Um, so, but seems to be what I want to do. So yeah, here I am. <laughs> so there's like a couple things I want to pull out of that. Like one, just a quick vocab lesson for those that don't maybe know, like monogamous mm -hmm. means being with just one partner, choosing to be with that partner and y'all doing whatever the fuck you want to do. And then um, being poly um, tends to mean being with multiple, it can mean multiple different things. It can mean yeah. being in an open relationship. It can mean dating multiple people it can can it also it also means like a couple dating having also another partner as a three 
Yeah, it's like a definitely like an umbrella term, I think. Yeah. I think like I think the general distinction though that people make between <laughs> like polyamory and other forms of non-monogamy is that polyamory generally I think is supposed to include the potential of falling in love with someone else mm. so that it's not just necessarily like I have one relationship where I, I can be like in love or have like really deep committed feelings. Um, and then I can like have sex with other people. Right. But I, I, I at least feel like that was originally kind of the distinction between like generally like non-monogamy and then like polyamory particularly because it's supposed to mean like multiple loves. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I maybe the language has changed because I right. feel like it's generally used as an umbrella term. Um, but yeah, I think initially that was sort of a distinction that was uh that's a good distinction. I hadn't I hadn't even thought about it like that, but that totally makes sense. Um so there's that for those that are new to the train. The what was the other thing that I wanted to say? Um, oh, I had been thinking a lot about I'm always thinking, but I was thinking a lot about like choice like how I don't know back when I was in high school being like coming out as queer being gay was like oh well did they choose or it's not a choice was it just god given or whatever and so like when I came when I came out as being bi at that time you know upgraded upgraded to pan but like (laughs) um um it was like that was a conflict I had in my brain all the time like was this just how I was born or was it something that I chose And that has like a lot of like, you know, religious connotation and things like that and um, all of that. But I was thinking about that in the context of poly, how like, you know, one, it doesn't, doesn't even matter. But one of the things I find that's liberatory about queer identities, but also um, poly identity is just your individual choice to one be like one make a decision for yourself to be like hey this is just what this is what I want to do this is what I want to feel and then second to be like I'm going to um one of the reasons why poly calls I'm so drawn to it not only just for my own kind of how I work in relationships and my philosophy on love and things like that but it's also kind of the trauma-informed thing it's like like ninja training, if it feels like to me, like, it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to be triggered. I'm going to have all these things, but how can I balance those things? How can I overcome them? How can I grow? And how can I be a more compassionate, loving human in a more expansive way? Um, and just thinking about it, framing it like that, how I know that you were like, this is something that I want to do. Like, what was it specifically about it that, that drew you? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting because I think you're right. I think the work of it is partially what's appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it is hard is partially what is appealing to me about it because um, I think that even in a monogamous relationship, I would definitely have more work than a non-traumatized person or a less traumatized person um, because you know, relationships are extremely triggering for people with attachment trauma and developmental trauma. They can bring up a lot of stuff. Um, So even in monogamy, it would still be hard, but there would be a way in which I could sort of like blanket that and like not have to really do as much hard work. Um, And with polyamory, I'm just literally forced to get right in there and deal with it. And there is an element of that that is appealing to me because I 
I want to do the work and I want to be able to be making choices and having my relationships from a more um, integrated and regulated place. So it, it is like ninja training, like you said, like <laughs> definitely, I think that's really true. Um, and I guess like for me, I, I know what it's like to be in love with more than one person. Like it's happened to me before and more than once in my life. And I, I think I was just really kind of baffled by the idea that like, that that necessarily had to mean ending one of those relationships, you know? Um, I wanted the freedom to be able to fall in love um, if I was going to fall in love. And I didn't want to close myself off to that. Um, So that's like a big thing for me. And I also want that for my partners or the people that I date. Like I don't want them to be in that position. Um, So that's a piece of it for me. Um, And then there's also just like literally a piece around like sexuality and desire where like, you know, again, like it does come back to trauma for me where, you know, like claiming my sexuality was extremely hard. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. I'm a queer person. Like I had a lot of trauma around my sexuality and like claiming that for myself was like super hard work, continues to be hard work. Um, And so I want the freedom to be able to seek out the kinds of experiences and connections that I want to have. And I want to have lots of those experiences, you know, with different people and like learn different things from different people. Um, And so for me, like polyamory creates like a context in which I have the freedom to have multiple different kinds of experiences that I think are really enriching for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that word freedom because I think I want to get into your politics a little later too, but I, I've been, we have, there are so many boxes. Like there are so many structures and boxes. And this is how you're supposed to be in rules about how we're supposed to live our life. And it's kind of dumbfounding when you think about it from like a relationship love standpoint, you're like, oh, I just want to feel these things. Like I want to feel closeness and compassion and, and, and sensuality and pleasure and, and, um, validation. And that's what we get into relationship for these different things or a spiritual reason. But yet we still are trying to like put in all these boxes around how it's got to look and what it's got to be and what label it has to have on it and what feelings you're supposed to have and what feelings you're not supposed to have. And, and I think what I also find liberatory about poly being poly is this freedom, just this ability to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm allowed to be human in all the facets without trying to like make it smaller, make it fit or make it, you know, whatever it neat into a box. I, I don't know. I'm, I think at this point in my life, I'm really fucking tired of boxes. Like I just, you can keep it. I don't want them. You can, I don't, I don't have any desire for that. Totally. And like, it lets you sort of let relationships become what they want to become without, you know, already deciding that there's like a limit on the possibility of like what that relationship could be. Um, yeah. And it just, yeah, it gives freedom to like actually experience like am I attracted to this person like is this dynamic am I feeling that like 
yeah. Whereas if I've already decided like I can't be, then I've already closed that door, you know? And like, I do want to say though, that like for me, I think it's important to like validate that monogamy is like legitimate and it's like a totally fine path. Cause I think that like often there's like a weird reversal like that can happen when like, when there's like a certain, like, like we can like reverse the norms sort Mm. of. So like, obviously we live in a culture that like values monogamy and like that privileges monogamy or like if you're monogamous, it's easier for in a lot of ways. Right. Um, And so obviously like people who are polyamorous are like, well, our relationship styles are valid and we want, you know, to be accepted and we want the space for that. Um, But then there could be like this like weird reversal that happens where like we can start being like, we have a more enlightened type of relationship style. Um, And especially, I mean, I I don't know um, about where you are, but like here for sure, like there can be like, in queer world, like polyamory is the norm, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, if you're a monogamous queer person, it can be actually harder to find a partner because most, because a lot of people, I mean, Montreal is a very polyamorous place, but it's very like queers are very usually, and I'm I'm definitely talking about like millennial, like kind of like, you know, queers rather than like gay and lesbian like because there's a bit of a difference in the culture there but like absolutely for sure if you're like a millennial queer like the most people are like polyamorous and so so yeah like I just like the those two things are different like it's like for sure like there's it's not it's not like the same like Mm -hmm. feeling like left out of a queer community is not the same as like you know the weird like government pressure or whatever to be monogamous but you know, I just think it's important to be like, it's fine if you want to be monogamous. Like, right, right. <laughs> especially because, no, like, I feel like traumatized people, like, sometimes traumatized people are like trying really hard to be polyamorous and then they just reach a certain point where they're like, fuck, maybe this is not do it. Yeah. <laughs> then they feel really like, oh my God, this is like a huge failure or something. And I'm like, it's not a failure. Like, the purpose is to find out what is your ideal relationship style and like what works for you. And if monogamy is like what works for you, that's great. You know, it's totally fine. But I think there does need to be space for people who are polyamorous to talk about that and to like how our relationship styles like validated because we can be like super um, invalidated and like dismissed by the larger culture. Yeah. I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's really important. I just, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I definitely feel like there is this weird seesawing effect of people that live on the quote unquote fringes of things Mm -hmm. to be like, Oh, well, you know, I'm going to then try and elevate mine to the highest standard or highest status or whatever. And it's like, we're just playing this. It's like you're the, you're, you can't uh, dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Mm -hmm. Like it's the same, it's the same power structure. It's the same language. Like, Fuck all of that language. So I'm I'm so glad you you brought that up for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so can we talk about how to navigate polyamory from a trauma informed space? So a little background for me mm-hmm. is me and my partner came into <laughs> we literally came into it being like we're some hoes, we enjoy <laughs> being hoes. And like, you know, but we, we met and we were like, oh no, this is like a thing. Like you and I, 
are meant to be. And we've been together for four years and I'm telling all of our business, but he does not care. <laughs> he does not care at all. But like we have, we have had the privilege of dating people together, mm-hmm. which ideally, which is like in an ideal world would be perfect. But unfortunately dating just one-on-one with one person is very difficult, let alone trying to date as a couple with another individual. So yeah. um, we, that's kind of where our non-monogamy kind of stays is to being together, dating other people. Um, it does, it, it does, it hasn't been long-term, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but um, it's been something that we're interested in continuing to explore because we both came into this knowing that we were some hoes. Like we, we just, we're non-monogamous in nature. Um, but what we have found out or what we struggle with is we, I'm going to sp- speak to me, is my attachment style. So I'm an anxious mm-hmm. attachment, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. really intense anxious attachment. And it used to be so much worse. Like I've, I've grown so much with that. But even when we're dating someone together, that element will come up almost every single time. And I have, a, I have to like use my own coping skills to try and process through that. But I often wonder, like, as our our relationship progresses and as we build a life together that we have, it's like, how do I continue to try and separate the love from him being able to love other people, me being able to love other people and not have the jealousy, not have the anxious attachment trauma stuff. Um, So I'm interested. I bought your workshop and was working through it, but I'd really love to kind of workshop it here if you feel comfortable. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first, the first piece is just like to normalize that experience because I think like so many people, I don't know, like the mainstream polyamory literature, I think can be like really, really dismissive of like what they call jealousy. And like one of the, one of the big sort of uh, points that I make in my workshop and my work on this is that I make a distinction or like I choose to use the language of distress rather than jealousy Mm. because I think that jealousy, basically the advice that they always give is they're just like, figure out why you're jealous, make sure your needs are getting met and then just sit with the discomfort and let it pass. And like for people who have trauma and attachment trauma stuff, it's like, (laughs) I'm like, I don't think you understand. Like I'm, I'm not going to be able to sit with it and let it pass. Like I can't tolerate the feeling it's too extreme, you know, yeah. and it can be dangerous. Like that level of distress can lead people into acting in ways that they deeply regret um, in terms of like how they act in their relationships, in terms of like behaviors that might be harmful to them that they act out in. So I'm like, you know, we actually need to, uh, we need to actually figure out what's going on and give people some tools um, yeah. instead of just telling people to sit with their feelings. Cause I'm like, for some people that might work, but I think anyone with any sort of nervous system dysregulation is, is not going to be enough. But then what happens is, is like, because, because like, I think it's like, kind of like, it's kind of like reactionary in the sense that like polyamorous people are sick of being told that our relationship styles are so hard. And so, so you know, like not real love or like whatever, or must be too hard. So we are defensive and we respond by sort of dismissing jealousy or acting like that's not a thing or that if it is a thing, then there's something wrong with the person. Like they're not really polyamorous or they're not working hard enough. And like, in fact, I can say from the success of my work on this topic, that it is an incredibly common experience for polyamorous people to feel totally flooded and overwhelmed by their distress around, you know, 
their triggers around relationships, which often is framed using the language of jealousy. Right. Um, but ultimately, like what it comes down to is that as social animals, our primary attachments and connections are like incredibly, incredibly important. We really do require them. And if you have any kind of attachment trauma, it's very easy to become flooded and overwhelmed. And the like threats to our relationships can be experienced in our bodies as literal threats to our lives. And so we have a full-blown nervous system reaction where we literally feel like we're going to die um, because we feel like our relationship is threatened, even if our relationship actually isn't threatened. Um, And even if like intellectually we know that we want this, this is consensual, this is based on our own desire, like, you know. So I think like a big piece is like first by starting by normalizing this, that it's like super common it's not shameful and like being hard on yourself about it is literally only going to increase your distress and make it harder to deal with Mm. um and then the next i think the next piece is about empowering ourselves with knowledge about what is going on for us and so this is where you know a lot of this like self-education and like I, i always think having a therapist is a great idea like if you can access that But like there's tons of resources available that you can use to learn about your nervous system, Mm. learn about attachment styles, um, and then you'll have a language and an understanding of what is happening for you. And then that can begin to open up tools that you can use um, to decrease your distress. And honestly, like I think one of the key things that is really useful about all of this is like what I call meta communication. Mm. So like communicating about the communicating and like communicating about the attachment stuff that is going on under the surface. So, you know, instead of like reacting, like say like, you're like, Oh my God, my partner's on a date with someone else or whatever. And Mm. I'm like really triggered and I'm feeling freaked out. And like, you know, you, a lot of people will sort of respond especially if you're anxious uh respond by sort of being like maybe accusatory or like you know well you were supposed to call me at this time and then you called me like 20 minutes after that so what am i supposed to think you know and I'm like whatever wow. something like okay <laughs> <laughs> it's come for me it's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very common very common um whereas and so what that will tend to do especially if your partner in any kind of way leans avoidant which if you're anxious, it's very likely that your partner leans avoidant because we, we have a type, you know? Right, right, um, exactly. <laughs> so if your partner leans avoidant, like they're going to respond to that by doing the exact opposite of what you're trying to achieve. They're right. going to respond to that by feeling attacked, by feeling like they, they're, they are not safe to, to express their needs, you know? And so they will pull back and shut down. And then the, you know, the anxious person notices that that's happening turns up the volume and that's like the anxious avoidant cycle that is like, yeah, it's a very (laughs) stressful cycle. But if you and your partner know about attachment theory and you've talked about it when you're not in distress and you both have a language for it and a framework for it, you could then say, you know, in a non-combative way, like my attachment stuff is activated right now Mm -hmm. and I'm feeling triggered. I can definitely feel myself moving into like a really anxious attachment space and I'm feeling scared and you know like it's triggered by this thing of you not calling exactly when you said that that you would 
but I know that it's about more than that. It's actually about my sense of security in this relationship and like what I actually need is to feel connected to you, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. if you can communicate like that, it's so much more successful. And the other person is, is like, oh, okay, you're not attacking me. You're actually like reaching out for connection and they're much more likely to respond, you know? And they might say they got a little triggered in their avoidance stuff. They could respond by being like, okay, when you bring up, you know, the specific minutes in which I called a little bit late, I feel triggered in my avoidance, but I know that you're not trying to attack me, you know? And so it gives more space to actually move towards what you really want, which is to feel connected to the person that you love, right? right. So that like attachment stuff, I, I honestly wish there was more, um, cause like the resources on it can be a little, they're very heteronormative and they're very um, obviously like monogamy centric. Um, so it's like kind of annoying because you have to read between the lines, but it's like, honestly, it's helped me so much in terms mm. of my relationships to have a language around attachment. Yeah. Like super, super key. So I think like, yeah, like polyamorous people could just like really benefit from just like getting that, that language and like using that framework in our relationships um, and then the other piece is the nervous system stuff. So mm -hmm. like a big part of my workshop is about like helping people to identify what is going on in, in our nervous systems and using polyvagal theory, there's basically like three parts of the nervous system. Um, so there's like safe and social, which is the ventral vagal part. Um, and then you have fight flight, um, which is a sympathetic uh, part of your nervous system. And then you have like the freeze collapse, which is the dorsal vagal part of the nervous system. And like all of those parts of the nervous systems like have a function, they evolve for a reason. Um, they're to help us survive. But for people who have a trauma and attachment trauma, we have a tendency to fly into um, nervous system reactions that are not like proportionate or like appropriate to the actual situation that we are in. And mm -hmm. so we'll go into like a fight response when actually we're not in danger, but we feel like we are. And so then we might behave in all sorts of ways that are like counterproductive to what we're trying to do. Yeah. So knowing that again, like really helps because first of all, if you know what it, it looks like when you're in a fight response, then you at least have more of an opportunity to understand that anything that you say and do in that response, like it may not be in your best interest. Like you right. might need to regulate and that that becomes like the focus instead of just like, let's solve this problem now. It's like the, the focus becomes, how can I actually come back into a safe and social nervous system place before we try to solve whatever this issue is? Which yeah. Is but like having nervous system literacy is like hugely important in being able to do that work. Hey friends, I'm pausing this incredible episode to share with you one of my absolute favorite products from one of my absolute favorite companies. So Nusafira Body has my number one top favorite moisturizer. It's called the Balm. And what I love about this, this product is that not only is it super clean, the packaging is reusable and biodegradable, you can use it for so many different things. It is, you can use it for your face, your body, your hair, you can even use it as a lube. 
um and it is it smells incredible like i have never smelt a product that had the scent that it does and it's incredible it's got essential oils and a bunch of different really nourishing oils in it that make my skin feel buttery soft and what's even better is that they just came out with the stick which is actually a portable version that's slightly different formula has a very similar smell but it's great for a chapped and irritated skin so you can use it for your lips and as we go into these winter months when everything's gonna get crusty you can start using it for elbows knees any of those little ashy spots I love this product and I'm super excited because if you use the code NEKKID, N-E-K-K-I-D, at checkout, you will get 20% off. So find them at nucifera.body.com. That's N-U-C-I-F-E-R-A-B-O-D-Y.com or on Instagram at nucifera.body. Get all the products because it's damn good. Absolutely. I mean, I really feel like they should be teaching this in school. Like they, yes. <laughs> like, yes, like this would help people at work. This would help people in their uh, family relationships. Yes. This will help everywhere in your life. I got asked to come in and speak to a social work class. Mm. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a social <laughs> I'm literally not. And like, I, w I got asked to come into this university, like fourth year, like social work degree class. And it was actually like um, a sexual diversity um, class. So I was there to talk about polyamory, actually. Okay. Uh, but I was obviously going into a little bit about my work on trauma-informed polyamory. So I, I just asked the class, I was like, so what's your basic understanding of the nervous system? You know, because I, I don't want to repeat a bunch of stuff that they already knew. Right, right. About the nervous system. The entire class was like, mm, and I was like, like the nervous system. And you're talking to so so social workers? Social workers. Oh my God. That's terrifying. It's terrifying. Like that's, that's actually terrifying. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I was like, kind of like, never mind everything else that I was going to say. <laughs> I'm just going to teach you about the nervous system now because I'm like, yeah, it's so incredibly important. And like so many issues would be so much more easily resolved. People understood what is going on in terms of a person being triggered into fight, flight and freeze and no longer being able to um, have like because the 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 frontal cortex of the brain, like the part of the brain that allows us to have like nuanced conversations where we can like hold complexity and like do the hard work that like relationship requires, that literally goes offline when we are, when we don't feel safe because it's yeah. like, obviously like if, if your nervous system is like, I'm in a life and death situation, it doesn't have the time and the energy to be focusing on like little nuances. Like it's just, this is danger and I need to survive, you know? So we have to be able to notice like when we are in that space, because we're not going to be making the most, you know, careful and nuanced decisions for ourselves and our relationships when we are in that state, which for traumatized people, like we're in that state very often. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, it's so funny when you were talking earlier about like, um, anxious and avoidant space. Um, it had me thinking my, my partner, so we've been together for four years and 
he's he's pretty secure attachment like he's done a lot of lot of work but i do notice like some avoidant tendencies sometimes and um but it was so cute because i had been out of town for about a week this previous week and i just got home yesterday and on the seat when he came to pick me up from the airport was like a little a jar with all these little pieces of paper in it i was like what is this and he's like it's like a validation jar. So it's like all the things <laughs> that like, you know, you can pull it out if you're feeling anxious or you're feeling whatever, like you can like pull out these little things if you need a little like rod thinks X, Y, Z of you, you know? And That's I was like, sir, the cute. Oh my God. So cute. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, you really, you get me. <laughs> That is so nice. But it's like the having little, like when you were talking about the communication thing, I've definitely noticed that. And I wish, you know, it's, I have to not beat myself up about like, you know, not all, we don't always have access to the tools, right? Like sometimes no. you're just, you're so far off the deep end. You're like, oh, I forgot the toolbox back on the shore, you know? Totally. 100%. We, and like, I can tell you from teaching these workshops that people act completely crazy in their relationships all the time. (laughs) None of us like are going to publicly go out and say like what we're actually doing and how crazy we're actually acting in our relationships. But like, you know, in the workshops, like I've done the workshop in person a bunch, right? So I'm sitting in a room full of like 30 people and just like the looks on their faces and the way they're all like quietly nodding as someone (laughs) is like (laughs) talking about like some crazy thing that they said and did. It's like, yes, like we, our relationships are, you know, they're so important to us and they're the place that we're most likely to feel triggered in our nervous system stuff. So we're most likely going to be acting all sorts of crazy ways in our relationships. And that's normal. It's just like, how can we sort of begin to grow those tools, have access to them more of the time, notice when we're totally going off the deep end and start to come back, like, you know, and it's never like a perfect, you know, it's just about, it's progress, you know, it's trying to move towards having more control and being more intentional. But like, for sure, we're still going to act crazy sometimes. Yeah. I think there's also this, like, this personal stigma, at least that I have felt about being like, oh, you know, I'm, I want to be in a healthy relationship. And that's like the big thing right now. It's like relationship goals, healthy relationship. You're looking on Instagram, everyone's smiling and happy and engaged and whatever. And you're like back in yours and you're like, wait, is this how it's supposed to be? Like, is it supposed to feel like this? Is it supposed to be this hard? Is it supposed to, or, you know, is how often do you go off the deep end, that type of thing? Mm-hmm. And I think like you said, normalizing, just like being like, yo, like, especially as traumatized people, it's really just about always coming back, trying to at least attempting to come back to center, like always trying to just come back to some semblance of grounded. Yeah. And we don't see like, this is another issue with the social media stuff, right? It's like, we don't see what's really going on in people's relationships. 100% we don't, you know? And so they probably are also having whatever is going on in their relationship that we don't see, you know? Um, And also like, like that work of like rupture and repair of like, that's part of relationship work and that's part of building intimacy. It's, It's normal. So like, I think in polyamory and definitely with trauma, that kind of gets blown up and is like much more dramatic than it might be in other contexts. But like the idea of like, I feel threatened. I feel scared. Can you see me? Can you reassure me? Can we come back to connection is literally how intimacy is like really built, you know? And for me, like with my partner, 
we've been together for like three and a half years. And like when, when I started that relationship for like the first like year, I was like, not that crazy. I was like, wow, look at me, like polyamory. <laughs> like I was like doing really like, well, I thought like, I was like, you know, before I was like, last time I tried polyamory, I was like really crazy. And this time, you know, I was like doing really well. And then right around the one year mark, I just <laughs> I went crazy, you know, and I became like really threatened and really afraid. And like, cause I guess I was more, I'd been in the relationship long enough to feel really in, like it was scarier to lose it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but like, and then I, th- I felt a lot of regret because I was like, wow, I brought all that crazy into this relationship. And I wanted this relationship to be like pure Ooh. and to like never be touched by all that yes. craziness, you yes. know? Yes. But then like, you know, my partner and I went through like a lot of work around attachment stuff. And like I, in my romantic relationships, I am an anxious preoccupied mm-hmm. where okay. I'm avoidant and disorganized in my friendship relationships. Okay. But in my in my romantic relationships, I am anxious, preoccupied <laughs> as fuck, and <laughs> and my partner like leans avoidant is like okay. closer to earn secure, but like definitely has avoidant tendencies when they get like triggered or whatever, right? right and obviously, yeah. me going off the deep end of anxious, preoccupied was creating that dynamic, and so right. we went through all of that, and like we learned how to talk to each other, and honestly, like I finally came to a place where I was like, wow, like. I'm actually so grateful that all that crazy came into the relationship because it created like a foundation of intimacy and closeness and like real understanding. Like my partner sees me now, like in a way that like they wouldn't have before. And I see them. I actually understand um, because avoidance gets such a bad rep. Like people are really hard on avoidance and they're like, if you read attachment literature, they're always like, if you're in a relationship with an avoidant, basically like run for the hills, right? Like they just, they're really hard on avoidance and understanding the attachment wounds that avoidance have Mm -hmm. and understanding that they're pulling away actually has to do with their investment in the relationship and how much it scares them and floods their nervous system, right? And so being able to see that woundedness in the avoidant partner it's like yeah like I was able to become a lot closer to my partner and understand them a lot better so I'm grateful that we went through all of that and came out the other side you know so it's like part of the work absolutely I love that you say that because I think you know like it is it's the hills that you climb it's the you know it's the workout that you do that makes it like super special and I and I think I'm always very hesitant to use like forever language or like it's going to work forever, you know, cause who fucking knows. But like, I love, I think what gives me confidence. I know in personally in my relationship is the fact that it's like, we've had to climb this mountain and this mountain and this mountain. And every time it's like, we get closer, we get more intimate, we get more healed. That's the piece for me. That yeah. that's it for me. It's like feeling more healed. Like after every encounter instead of feeling more scarred after the mm-hmm. encounter mm-hmm. you know because there's like relationships prior where it's like you know you blow up you have this and I didn't have the language for it at that time but you're going through it and then I feel more tra- I come out of it more traumatized than I was before and now it's like it happens and I feel more in alignment more grounded more at peace than I did before and I don't know. That's the beauty to me of being not only in a relationship, but more specifically in a relationship that brings up like a poly relationship or a non-monogamous relationship that brings, it dredges more of that stuff up because then it's more opportunity for the healing. 100%. Yeah. And it's like, it's work, but it's like super worth it. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's good. (laughs) 
That's so good. <laughs> um, can we, so I know you talk a little bit about kink and BDSM and mm-hmm. things like that, but can we talk about that a little bit and just sure. um, your relationship to kink and trauma and like how those two things like coincide together? Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty funny. Like I, I mean, yeah, like with the trajectory of my life being what it's been, like I had all these years that I was sort of like, I don't even know what that was because I was just so drunk all the time. Right. (laughs) And so like when I was younger, like sure, I did a whole bunch of crazy shit, but I was like, I don't know, man, I was drunk. And like, I don't, I don't know if that's like reflective of who I am. And so Mm -hmm. when I got sober, I actually strongly identified as vanilla for like a while. Like I strongly did. Like I was like, because I'm a romantic, I'm a deep romantic. And like, I think romance is hot, you know, and like, I'm really turned on by like intimacy and like, by like connection and stuff like that. So I was like, that's like hotter to me than like all of this, like, you know, kinky shit or whatever. So, so it was just like, I guess I'm vanilla. And it was important to me for that to be okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, and I strongly, like, feel that way. Because I think, like I was saying with the polyamory stuff earlier, like, with it happens with BDSM and vanilla stuff, too, where, like, we, like, weirdly shame people for being vanilla. Like, they're not, yeah. like, sexually liberated or something. I'm like, <laughs> right. actually, like, it's pretty sexually liberated if, if that's what you know you like, you know? Exactly. Like, it's great. Go for it. And, like, even though I, I did eventually realize that I am pretty... I'm pretty fucking kinky and pretty <laughs> intensely into BDSM. Like, I still, like, it's almost like vanilla is, like, one of my kinks. Like, uh, yeah. Like, it's still, it's still, it's not one or the other for me, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I still value, like, that kind of sexuality and think it's hot. Like, for sure, I have a place for that. But, yeah, like, when I met my current partner, I fully told them that I was vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, turns out that was not the case. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I... Like, I have a pretty strong, like, DS uh, dynamic with my partner where I'm a submissive. And I also have explored a lot of, like, BDSM at, like, play parties, like, queer play parties. Um, So I have BDSM, like, kind of different kinds of BDSM experiences with, like, um, people that I didn't necessarily know super well or more, like, friends or just people that I knew kind of in the context of of a play party. Right. so I've had like a variety of experiences ranging from like a DS dynamic with my partner that is like rooted in like really intense, like romantic love and mm-hmm, then also mm-hmm. more casual stuff. And I'm mostly a submissive, um, but I started to switch and and do some doming in the context, mostly in the context of play parties, play but parties. that has been really interesting as well. So can we... It's to your com- how comfortable you are. I mean, I'm you know so- what I write about. It's fine. Yes. Okay. So I'm like, let's let's get in it. I have some questions. So um, I want to know, like, because so BDSM kink is something obviously I'm also really interested in and have been a part of in in various different ways, and um, the uh, dom submissive space is something that I've been my partner and I have still telling all of our business, but it's fine. (laughs) Um, But like, it's something that we've explored in, in multiple different ways. And like, um, but it's something that it's funny because it's something that's strictly in like a bedroom setting, like in a sexual setting. And it's not something that comes out of it, but I've always been really interested in how it shows up outside of 
I mean, you know, like this idea that like the sex starts not just in the bedroom, but like outside of it. But like, do you have experiences with that? Like what, how does, what does that dynamic look like? What does it play out to be? I mean, I'm definitely not in like a 24-7 DS kind of thing. Like I would definitely say it's important for me to have like an aspect of the relationship where we aren't necessarily doing that. But at the same time, like it's, it's still always there. Um, so I, but I do think there's like a distinction because for some people they're like 24 seven and that dynamic is like always like right at the surface. Whereas like for me, it isn't always or even usually right at the surface. Um, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say that it's like just sex either because it's like my, especially in the context of like in my partnership, like my submission is like deeply rooted in my feelings of love, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's not just about sex. It's also like deeply about love. And it's like a, a lot about like our partnership and our, our, our connection. Um, and yeah, there's just like a deep, deep part of me that like wants to express that kind of love through submission and devotion. And I think mm-hmm. that's really hot. And I also think it's like really romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. Um, and like, yeah, like I, I'm collared, like my partner gave me a collar, like for our one year anniversary, which was like super hot and nice. Um, so like I have that. Um, and I only wear that collar like with my partner. Um, but at the same time, like I'm, because I'm polyamorous and slutty, like I'm also <laughs> fully free to like, you know, do what I want or whatever with like any other doms or any other situation. So it's not exclusive like that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't so know. I don't... Can you explain the collared piece? Cause I'm like, it's interesting to, it's interesting how culture like picks up on these little things. Cause it's like everyone wears collars now, like it's, it's jewelry now, you know? Um, but like, what does that mean? What is the dynamic of that? Like, um, I mean, I think it can mean different things. So I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to like make like an overarching statement because I think yeah. like different DS relationships are different and sure. a caller can mean different things to different people and mm-hmm. different relationships. Um, for me, it means that like I am in an ongoing like relationship, like an ongoing DS dy- dynamic. And it's like, um, it's like, a a symbol of that relationship that when I wear it it's like I'm I'm like stepping into that you know and so Mm. I think the collar I we don't always I don't always wear the collar but like yeah it's like a way of being like we're shifting from our like day-to-day like partner relationship into like the explicitly DS um kind of dynamic that we have so it's like it's can help like shift the roles um and it's also just like I don't know like it's like a very romantic symbol to me like it's like a like a gift that shows like my partner and like my dom like expressing that relationship of like dominance and control that we have in a consensual romantic sexual dynamic and space yeah yeah yeah. I love that. I Because I always, one of the things that I struggle with is like, I don't know how into astrology you are, but um, I'm a Capricorn and- I'm a Capricorn too. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you understand. Okay. <laughs> 
So I'm a Capricorn and I have Capricorn in five different planets. Okay. Wow. Yes. And I'm also an Aries moon and a Cancer uh, rising. Okay. I'm a Cancer rising too. Jesus Christ. Okay. So we're just, (laughs) we're right here. Um, What's your moon sign? It's Capricorn. Okay. So you're- I have have three Capricorns, Sun, Moon, and Mercury. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I, you know, I think there's a level of like, for lack of a better word, like masculine energy. There's a level of dominance energy. There's a level of, you know, just that in my, it just always has been. I came out of the womb. (laughs) Like that's who I was. And so, but there is- um, I also find deep sensuality and um, I don't know another word to use, but I, I find it romantic isn't the word, but empowering, I think is the word for me being in submissive space um, and being, being out of control because so much of my life is about trying to be in control of something. And so, especially when I have a partner that I feel safe enough to be able to release that and be in surrendered a surrendered space like that. It is super, super liberating for me because not only does it um, challenge my age old trust issues specifically to men, because I'm in a relationship with a man um, and being able to like trust him in that way. I, I find it healing um, because I don't come from a space where I've come from just a lot of trauma when it comes to men and men in my mm-hmm. life and things like mm-hmm. that. So, um, to be able to have that has felt so healing, but what I have struggled with is like trying to figure out what that looks like, like the, the moving, I, I love how you said the, the collar is a symbol of like kind of moving into that space and not really having that. It's like, okay, we're, you know, we're about to fuck. Cool. Like maybe this element is going to come out. Maybe it doesn't, that kind of thing. But um, I like this kind of having a piece of being like, okay, and now we're in this role or we're in this space and, and having, maybe it's about the consent. Maybe it's about, I don't know what it is. There's like, um, not barriers, but. I don't know what I'm trying to articulate, but I enjoy that there's like, you have a a container for it. Yeah. And like, I mean, we don't do it all the time, but there's been certain times where like, I will wear the collar out like on Mm. a date Uh and it's like extremely hot. And like, it's like holding that, like being mentally in that headspace and like holding that over, you know, even though we're not overtly doing anything. Yes. It's like that energy is there because we have chosen to like bring that into the space right. you know, on a particular date or a particular outing or something like that. Um, but yeah, I totally relate to what you're saying um, in terms of like the sense of like, I actually think that submission is like a huge space of power. Like it's an incredibly powerful space because Absolutely. it's like, And I learned this, I knew this as a sub, but I learned it so much more when I started to dom Mm. because I was like, wow, like the amount of trust that a dom puts in the submissive is like unbelievable. Like, of course the submissive is putting so much trust in the dom to be like, I'm giving this to you for you to hold. But the dom is being like, I am trusting you to be honest with me and to actually give me the correct parameters so that I am taking you to this space in a way that you want to go there, you know? And exactly. 
as a trauma survivor, doming is like terrifying, right? Because you're yeah. like, oh my God, like I do not want to hurt this person. I do not want to cross any lines. Um, and so that's why like, you know, BDSM is such an interesting space of like actually modeling consent in a way that I think like vanilla sex could learn from. Mm-hmm. Have these like conversations ahead of time, you know, and like when I have done scenes where I'm the dom, like I will like have these like, you know, I obviously have done it as a submissive too, but it's like from the dom perspective, it was so much more like, okay, like I really need to be <laughs> clear about this. Like, what are your signals? Like, how will I know? What body language am I looking for? Like, yeah. you know, like how are you going to communicate to me that things are going the way that you want? Like what is out of like off limits? Like what, what part really turns you on, et cetera. So, yeah. um, yeah, like I think both sides, it's like a huge act of like trust, but yeah, like from the, from the submissive side, like, especially if you're, you know, a multiple Capricorn type, (laughs) like being in charge. Like I'm, you know, like a person who takes a huge amount of control over my life. I've been in that position for most of my life where like, I'm sort of, it's me. Like I moved out really young. Like I've been responsible for myself and I really, it's so fucking relaxing (laughs) to be able to go into a space where it's like, I'm handing that over you know, in an intentional way, but like I'm handing that over for like the period of time that we're doing this. And it's like super, super liberating and empowering yes. and like super relaxing. Like, cause like, I'm definitely the type that like, you know, my stress manifests in like my shoulders, like being up <laughs> in my ears and like all of this tension and just like being able to like, like let it go mm-hmm. is such a powerful space. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's like the... <sighs> the level at which I can access that surrender in a BDSM space is unparalleled to what I have been able to, to access outside of that space. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. It's like, you know, that is, I don't know. I can't think of a more surrender, more surrendered space than to be there. Um, And that's something that I'm actively working towards is like releasing control and getting to more surrender just from like a spiritual Mm. standpoint. And that's why I always find it so fascinating because I think sexuality parallels so much in our lives. And it's like, it's been in this little box and over to the corner and shamed for so long, but I have accessed like spiritual lessons through 100%, you know, through a BDSM relationship, through a poly relationship. Like I, it has been a model for me on how to um, access deeper levels of pleasure and joy and surrender and trust, trust, so much trust. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, Cool. So before we close off here I did want to talk about your and I wanted to talk about this in the beginning but we we went such a beautiful little path (laughs) (laughs) but I want to talk one of the things that I what's really important to me in the people that I'm really attracted to their work what they say like means something to me is like kind of having a whole package in a way because there's a lot of people that um, I follow their work and it's just like, I just like this thing that they teach, mm. like everything else they stand for. I'm like, really not about, you know? Yeah. But you're not one of those people for me because you have a politics that I really, 
um, align with, and that's being the abolitionism, that is being um, anarchy I'm, is something I'm definitely still trying to learn and trying to mm-hmm. understand. But every time you speak about it, I'm like, oh, yep, 100%. <laughs> I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Anti capitalism, all of that. So I kind of wanted to talk about your politics and like how you got to that that space um because i know it informs all the stuff that we've already been talking about but i'm really interested in kind of diving in there yeah so i would say that like i'm like basically like philosophically and spiritually an anarchist and like maybe pragmatically i'm a socialist mm-hmm. in the sense that like i'm not such an idealist that like I won't work with the systems that are currently here in terms of trying to make things at least somewhat better because I'm like things are really bad so you know there are some anarchists who are like really intensely like they just reject the whole thing and I I reject it too but like I still for example I still vote because I'm like you know things are really bad and because I don't see the current order being toppled anytime soon, I would rather pragmatically work within this current system to do what we can to like better people's lives um, in a practical way while still holding anarchist values and trying to work towards that in, Mm. in, in big and small ways and, and live those values. So like for me, um, anarchism as like a spiritual value, like I actually see it as very spiritual, is it has to do with the belief that human beings are capable of working together to meet our needs, Mm. Um, you know, and that we don't actually need authority to tell us to do that. We don't need to be coerced into that. And I actually believe that human beings like at our best and at our healthiest, which as we've already discussed, it's very hard for us to be at our best and at our healthiest under capitalism and these other harmful systems. But at our best, like we're social animals. We've actually evolved to work together in groups, you know, and we want to work in groups. And so it's interesting. There's like, um, I'm going to see if I can articulate this, but there's something about anarchism that actually resonates very strongly with what you were just saying around BDSM and submission. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this, there's this anarchist, uh, anthropologist named David Graeber. And I was listening to a talk that he gave about consensus building processes within like an anarchist context. Mm. And I was like, this reminds me so much of BDSM in this weird way, (laughs) because it's like, when you are doing consensus building, there's a way in which, yes, you have your own will, but there is a way in which you're also surrendering that will to the group Mm. and you are not getting it's it's like a collaborative process and part of what is exciting about it is the trust and the fact that you aren't in total control you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that you're actually giving over a lot of that control to the group because you trust the group you know and so like weirdly I was like this is like a weird resonance a hundred percent a hundred (laughs) percent of BDSM I was like this is weirdly like kind of hot but okay Um, But yeah, like, so for me, like, I mean, I'm an abolitionist, like, very strongly because I think that locking people up is wrong. And, like, I fundamentally, like, reject it in my bones. Like, I just cannot, Mm -hmm. like, accept that. Um, 
And I'm, I'm happy to see that, that abolitionism is starting to become, you know, more of a mainstream talking point. And like, I'm hoping that that gets fleshed out and that we can like continue to really critique the ways in which we um, address harm in our communities. Um, I also think that like a lot of the time people being put in jail has nothing to do with harm at all. Um, yeah. Of course, we always go to like the, the really extreme example of like, well, what about like a murderer or a rapist? That's what everyone always says. But I'm like, the majority of rapists never go to jail. Um, oh, no, <laughs> they don't. So no. I don't understand why we have to constantly say that because we actually don't like that. It doesn't actually function in that way. So I do think that we as communities need to find ways of protecting each other and keeping each other and ourselves as safe as possible. And we have a lot of work to do. Um, and in some ways, I don't think it's enough to just be like, abolish the police mm. without also doing the work of saying, what are we going to do for communities who really need some intervention in terms of like, just like violence and crazy shit going on. And I don't think the police are doing that. Um, no. But I also don't think it's enough to just be like, we're done once once we get rid of the police. Like we actually like like there's an aspect of like abolishing, but abolishing also has to do with like the positive aspect of like creating something new. The transformative look. justice piece. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like how do we actually take care of each other? And like that's why like in so many ways I'm a socialist because I'm like so many of these fucking problems would be solved if people had their needs met. You know, like if people were safe and they had housing and food and healthcare. We get a lot of we can yeah, knock out like, so much of it right there. Yeah, like right there. That's pretty much like, I'm like, that's why I'm a socialist. Cause I'm like, if we could just deal with that, like, I honestly think so many of these other issues would be so much more resolved. And also people would be at a better and safer place to be able to, I don't know, stand up for themselves. Like even with a situation, like for example, like domestic violence or like intimate partner violence, like, mm -hmm. you know, we want to address that by looking at like sexism, but I'm like, okay, sure. But also, what if she knew that she had housing, you know? Right. Like, to me, I'm like, that's not going to get rid of people being abusive, but it is going to highly empower people to leave abusive situations in a way yeah. that they currently are not empowered at all, you know? So I'm like, let's just get some socialism as like a sort of, <laughs> as a sort of ground, and then we can work from there. Like that's, I, I really strongly feel that way in terms of just like meeting people's basic needs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of the anarchism, like I'm just really like, I don't think that like authority and like coercion are the ways toward like justice and towards like equity and towards like, you know, the worlds that we're trying to build. So I'm hoping that we can find other strategies. Um, but I, unfortunately, I do really see authoritarian like strategies like highly carried out on the left. And like we actually do so much of the work that we're trying to do, like we do it in really authoritarian ways. Absolutely. Which like as an anarchist, like I just can't get behind that. And it's like yeah. counterproductive to me because people should be doing like enacting their values and principles like from a place like where they are doing it because they know that it's the right thing to do, not because they're doing it because they're scared. Cause like, that's not like, it's, it's not effective. It's not actually going to work in the long term. Yeah. Like it doesn't really transform things. Exactly. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because it's, I mean, it's not liberatory at all. Like I'm always, yeah. I'm like always trying to get to a liberatory framework. Like yes. how can we all experience liberation? That's such a good and, word. Yeah. You know, like fear is never going to be liberatory, no. not no. from a spiritual standpoint and not from no. a social political standpoint. No. Um, but it's funny because like talking about anarchy and socialism and, you know, everyone getting their needs met and like governing self-governance, it's, Interesting because I feel like this whole conversation that we've been having about polyamory and trauma informed, specifically the trauma informed piece, it's like we need trauma informed on like a personal level, yeah, and then we need it on like a, on this like this political level, you know, yes. like that's what it, like that. I think that's where the liberation comes from. That's where the freedom comes from is when we're able to figure out like, okay, we need to be having these intimate interpersonal relationships that are safe and that are mutually um mu- like mutual aid within those but then we also need to be having that on a grand scale and learning how to scale that back and forth constantly yeah um, i don't i i don't really just don't believe that we will be free until we have some type of framework that honors that reality that's so well put yeah exactly yeah hmm. okay well this has been amazing <laughs> This was such a great conversation. I feel yeah. like it's just been so perfect. But um, just to close out, like, before, oh, actually, before I ask my last question, where can people find you? What, where can they find your work? How can they support you? So my website is clementimorgan.com. And that's where you can order like my zines and my workshop and basically um, any of the products that I put out, I sell on my website. I also have a Patreon, so that's just patreon.com slash Clementine Morgan, and I update that usually about twice a month with, like, new writing, and then I'm on Instagram. I've become intentionally less active on Instagram because I'm trying to de-brainwash my brain from the social media life, Um, (laughs) but I still, like, log on to post um, a couple times a week, so you can find me on Instagram, which is just my name, Clementine Morgan. So good. I please follow... Clementine, like I have, I am a better person for knowing your work. So I'm (laughs) very grateful. Very, very grateful. Um, So to end off, what is lighting you up these days? What is lighting me up? It's interesting. This is, this is a weird, maybe a weird answer. Um, But what is lighting me up is actually the bees. Um, I love that. (laughs) It's really funny because on my Instagram recently, I posted a few pictures of bees and they just do not get the likes. They don't get the likes. And I'm like, (laughs) what is going on? Like, I don't understand. But anyway, I, (laughs) this girl that I'm dating who I was hanging out with recently and I was telling her about the bees and she was literally like, Clementine, like, what, like, how are you even seeing this? And I'm like, I, I, I stop it. I watch the bees. Like, um, yeah, basically I love love bees. And, um, you know, I think that, I mean, I care a lot about bioregionalism and I care a lot about, um, the planet and I'm quite concerned for the health of the planet. And I'm very in love with bees for what they do for us. Um, they're extremely important creatures. And I, uh, I try to, like, for example, I've been planting clovers in my backyard because clover is like flower, so they're better for the bees. And I like to stop when I see flowers and just watch um, the different kinds of bees that come. And I would actually really encourage people to do this because bees are really interesting. And like, 
Some of them are like neon green. Some of them are like tiny and look like little ants. Like they're really different from what people think. Um, And honestly, like, I don't know. I think in this like chaotic, extremely distressing time that we're living in, in this like bleak hellscape of a timeline, like grounding myself in like the world and like, um, there's a line from the author, um, Kim Stanley Robinson in one of his books that is the wild world itself is holy. Mm. That has just like, it saves me when everything is so stressful and chaotic. And I think like a practice of devotion to the bees is something that makes me feel a little bit more sane. That just lit me all the way up. <laughs> I love that you said that. I I just, that's perfect. That's the perfect way to end this for so many reasons. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. So, what y'all think? Taboo conversations are my favorite. Um, so, I'm super glad I got to share this episode with you. I got to share Clementine Morgan with you. She's just incredible, and you should absolutely be following her work, supporting her, buying her her writings, um, because we're all just growing together and learning and exploring together. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please continue to support the podcast by sharing it, by downloading, subscribing, um, all the things, and... Um, I will see you in two weeks. Have an incredible one. Bye.